faith family, one of God's good gifts to us is people who tell us the truth. Having people in your life who will tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. One of God's good gifts to us are putting people in our lives who will speak the truth, who will put the relationship we have with them at risk so that we might know the right path we should walk in. Teenagers, if you have parents who speak the truth to you, you have a gift. Receive what they say. It's a wonderful gift to be, uh, have parents who love you and shepherd you. In fact, part of the, the calling that God has placed upon me as your pastor is to speak the truth. When Paul was telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience in teaching. For the time will come, I believe it's now, when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. One of God's good gifts to us is people who will tell us the truth. Not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Proverbs says that an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. This is what the Lord does with us. God is a truth teller because he is the truth. And when we get to Habakkuk, chapter 2, we see where God speaks to Habakkuk. He responds to his questions and tells him not what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Habakkuk, chapter 2. As a faith family, we've been walking through this great book of Habakkuk. If you're not certain where it is in your Bible, do not fret. You have a table of contents which is a great resource that you can use to help you find the page number. We're looking at the character of God, that he is both good and sovereign. He's both. There's times in which people have an existential crisis in which they wonder, where is God? What is he doing? What is he like? Either he is good and he couldn't stop evil from happening, or he's able to stop it, but he's not good in his nature. And the Bible says, no, there's a third way that he is both. God is good and he is sovereign. And he is working in and through evil for something bigger than we can see. And ultimately, it's the fame of his name. It's the gospel that is going forth through suffering. Habakkuk lived in, a fin in the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah before the people would be taken over by the Babylonians. Indeed, the Babylonians would attack Judah, take them into captivity for 70 years. And Habakkuk is in this unique situation in comparison to the other prophets because his book is not him telling the people what God says. There's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's a personal, intimate conversation in which Habakkuk is lamenting. He is grieving over the injustice that's happening in Judah. Two weeks ago, we looked at Habakkuk's first question in which he was asking, God, where are you? in the midst of all of the injustice and the violence that's happening in Judah. God, these are your people. Where are you? Why are you allowing your people to behave this way? Are you not paying attention? Well, we see that God does respond and says, oh, I'm paying attention. I know exactly what's happening and I am going to respond. Indeed, I am going to do something that's going to shock you. 
I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. And they are going to be the means through which judgment is going to come on my people. Well, that then leads to Habakkuk's second question. Why? God, why? God, why would you do this? God, why would you allow this nation that's worse than us to attack us? The Babylonians are some of the worst people on earth. Why would a holy and just God permit such an unholy pagan nation to attack Judah? We finished last week at the beginning of chapter 2 with Habakkuk waiting on the Lord. He asks the question why. He goes to a watchtower and it's there that he waits. And as he's perched, sitting in the watchtower, waiting patiently for the Lord's response, God then speaks in Habakkuk 2, beginning with verse 2. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and like death. He is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Won't all these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer and loads himself with goods taken in pledge? Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoiled for them since you have plundered many nations. All the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. Here the Lord is telling Habakkuk not what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear. He is perplexed as to what the Lord is doing. Why would God use a pagan nation like Babylon to discipline his people? He's asking why, and God responds and tells him why. 
I want you to notice in the text what God says here in the text to Habakkuk and what this means for us. I want you to see first, I want you to see first, God's word is clear and timely. His word is clear and timely. The Lord tells Habakkuk, verse 2, get out some tablets, write this down, make it clear. Much like the job of a preacher is to make it clear, be plain, make it plain. I heard regularly at seminary, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. Make sure you are making it plain. Be clear in what you're saying. God is telling Habakkuk that same thing. Make your handwriting neat. Make sure everybody, anybody, everybody can understand what I'm about to say. I'm not a God of confusion and I have a word for my people. So make sure you're clear and you're understandable. But also we see in the text, his word is reliable. This vision, look at verse three, will not lie. You see, God always speaks the truth because he is truth. In a world filled with lies, as you and I are lied to every day through social media, news outlets, people at work, bosses, co-workers, teammates, neighbors, friends, classmates, as we are always hearing lies, God will never lie to you. He is the truth teller. This is why you need God's word as the plumb line of what is true and right in the world. And God promises, I'm always going to tell you the truth. I do not lie. And when God makes a promise that something is going to happen, you can trust that it will come to fulfillment. This is a God who always tells the truth that in a world full of exaggeration, manipulation, falsehood, embellishment, God always speaks the truth. And the Lord is telling Habakkuk that this vision, it's going to come to fulfillment. Verse 3, it's going to happen at the appointed time. God's telling Habakkuk, this is a future day that's going to take place. Judgment on Babylon is coming. It's certain. And though it delays, verse 3, it will not be late. Y'all, that's such good news. This is such good news that God is never late. God is always on time. He does what he does on his perfect schedule. He does what he pleases and he will accomplish his purposes when he decides. We wait on him, not the other way around. God's word is clear and timely. But secondly, what we see in the text is God's distinguishing mark between the righteous and the unrighteous. As God's pronouncement of judgment is coming on Babylon, it's about to be revealed, he gives a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the just and the unjust. Let's start with the unrighteous. Verse 4. He says, look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. That word his, I don't think it's a reference to the king of Babylon. I think it's a reference to the entire nation of Babylon. And God is describing in verses 4 and 5 the character of this nation, of these people. They're full of arrogance. They're full of ego. They're without integrity. They are full of drunkenness. These are the marks of unbelievers. Those who are full of self. Those who are full of pride. Those who are full of alcohol. Those who are dominating other people. But there's a contrast here. There's a distinction that God sets in verse 4 between believers and unbelievers. Between the righteous and the unrighteous. Look at verse 4. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Verse 4 has often been referenced as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. 
Here is the call of God for people to believe upon Yahweh and to live for him. While the Babylonians were known for their arrogance and their pride, it is not so among the righteous. There's a stark contrast between righteous people who live by faith and the way the world lives for their flesh. And as Babylon is set to attack Judah, as God's people are about to be overwhelmed, slaughtered, and many of the Jews sent off into slavery like Daniel for 70 years, God is giving the mark that sets his people apart from the rest of the world. And it's those who live by faith. Verse 4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. We see it in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. In Romans 1.17, Paul references this key verse to the gospel. That the foundation of genuine righteousness is by faith. Faith in what? No, no. Faith in who? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh. We are declared right before God by faith in Christ. Romans 5.1. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that through the cross, there is this great reversal. It's a give and a take. God takes, excuse me, God takes away our sin, and then God gives us his righteousness. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says, God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, at the cross, Jesus took all of your sin Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, every posture of your heart of arrogance and pride, every time you talked back to your parents, every time you, you took something that wasn't yours, every attitude you've had towards someone was nailed to Jesus. And he takes it from you. But then there's also the reversal in which he gives his righteousness. He applies his righteousness to you. So now you are permanently and you're standing before God, righteous and just before him. And see, it's this righteousness that we have. It's not by trusting in our righteousness. We're trusting in the righteousness of another. That's where Paul says it in Galatians 3, 11. He says, now it is evidence that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in Christ is what justifies you before a righteous and holy God. And Habakkuk is pointing to Yahweh, saying faith in him is the distinguishing mark that separates his people from the rest of the world. At those who belong to Christ, we walk by faith as the rest of the culture around us, as they live according to the pattern of the worlds, as people pursue what feels good and the desires of the flesh, we are a people who trust in Christ and we revolve all of our lives around him. But as for the Babylonians, they get drunk on their wine. They are restless because of their arrogance. Boy, it sounds like the culture in which we live, doesn't it? They're unsatisfied, verse five. So they continue to attack more and more nations. It's amazing here. You see, the human heart is never satisfied. It's amazing here. We see in the text how like, 
the flesh of the Babylonians, they continually crave more. But you see, that's how your flesh and my flesh works. We always want more. That, that one hit of the drug isn't enough, so we keep going back for more and more. That's our flesh. It's never satisfied. That, that, um, that desire for pornography, we go like that one look, but then we go back for more and more. There's never enough sex, never enough money, never enough clothes, never enough stuff. We always want more. Our hearts are restless. We are longing for something. There's this, uh, this great theologian in the past who said, we have this God-shaped hole in our heart that only God himself can fill. St. Augustine said it like this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That the human heart is continually looking to fill itself with something. And ultimately, our souls were find, ultimately designed to find their rest in the Lord. That we trust in him. You see, for the Babylonians, they're lusting for more domination. They're thirsty for more bloodshed. And Babylon is going to face judgment for their sins. Make no mistake, before the Lord on the last day, what God is saying here, they're also going to face an earthly judgment by the nations who are going to, look at verse 6, rise up against them and mock them. And as Habakkuk is shocked that God would permit a pagan nation to ransack and destroy and slaughter and enslave the people of Judah, God's letting him know no one gets away with anything before the Almighty. Don't miss that. No one gets away with anything before the Almighty. Though Judah would be punished for the many sins they've committed, just as Habakkuk listed them back in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Babylon is going to receive God's judgment as well. God promises, guess what? I am going to bring Babylon down. No one gets away with anything before the Almighty. Has someone hurt you? Has someone sinned against you? Has someone stolen from you? Has someone harmed your family? Beloved, hear me on this. No one gets away with anything before the Almighty. No one gets away with anything. You may be thinking, man, I'm going to take them down. And I'm gonna, you clench your fist, you become angry. You're sitting there thinking, I'm going to take that person down. How dare they hurt me? How dare they hurt my family? The Lord says, no, no. Unclench your fists. Romans 12, verse 19. Friends, I love that. Do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. As a believer, we do not fight for revenge. We don't clench our fists. We don't seek to exact punishment for those who have hurt us. Indeed, we forgive as those who have forgiven in Christ. We are those who walk in humility and wisdom and love, knowing ultimately God sees God knows, and God will judge. There is no one who gets away with a sin that will not be punished. And either that sin will be punished on them in eternity, 
or that sin was punished on Jesus at the cross. And so we pray for our enemies, that they would be reconciled to God, that they would look unto him and be saved, that the sin that they committed against us would ultimately be placed upon Christ, that they would believe upon him and be rescued and ransomed by his precious blood, that they would look to Christ and they would not be punished on them. They would realize that their punishment was placed upon him. You see, just as God permits evil without himself being evil, God will hold every nation and every person accountable to his justice. And so what is coming for Babylon? I want you to note in the rest of the text, as chapter 2 finishes up, these five woes, these five warnings of coming judgment for Babylon and what this looks like for us. I want you to see first that judgment is coming for pillaging the nations. When Babylon would conquer a nation, they would pillage and plunder. They would steal what was not theirs. And they would also bring a heavy taxation against these conquered people. They would include this excessive um, interest of the poor. We see this in the days of Jesus in which the Romans would exact high interest against the poor. This is one of the reasons why the Jews hated the Romans so much is because of the taxation. They were constantly stealing and pillaging money from them. I'm so close to beating this cold, y'all. Man, hang with me. We're almost there. And so you've got this situation where the Babylonians would pillage, they would steal, they would take what wasn't theirs, and then they would charge interest, exorbitant interest, from those who were under their authority. But before you and I look down our noses on the Babylonians and the Romans, the same thing's happening today. We see in payday lending services where these fast money loans, they offer quick money to the poor but charge exorbitant interest. They're seizing opportunity to take advantage of the poor. We see this in the gambling industry in which there are the poor go and give their paychecks to try in hopes of getting a windfall in return. In essence, they lose their money. And then they, in debt, they go into debt to these casinos, leaving children and women and families financially poor, hungry, homeless, and with no one to provide for them. As believers, this is where we stand. Throughout the ages, believers have stood the line against this practice in which we say, no, 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 you can't do that. It's wrong to steal from the poor. God does not take kindly those who take advantage of the poor and needy. In Proverbs 14, 31, it says, the one who oppresses the poor person insults his maker, but one who is kind to the needy honors him. And the Lord is telling Habakkuk, the Babylonians, they're going to be pillaged. <laughs> these people who were stealing and pillaging from all these nations, guess what? They're going to be stolen from. They're going to be pillaged. It kind of sounds like Galatians 6, 7, where the Lord says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. No one gets away with anything before the Almighty. God sees, God knows, and he does not take kindly to those who take advantage of the poor. From con artists and swindlers who take money from those who don't have it. 
And so God is pronouncing judgment upon the nation of Babylon for how they have pillaged and stolen and taken all of these things. Don't look now. Let's be careful. Because the same thing's happening today. The second thing we see in the text is that there's judgment for plotting deceitfully. We see in verse 9, the Babylonians have built houses. They have accumulated wealth dishonestly. These are charlatans who have filled their pocketbooks in order to build bigger houses. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that those who turn away from swindling, those who repent of stealing, those who turn away from being a con artist, they're received. They're accepted in the gospel. And they prove their salvation by a change in their life. We see this in Luke 19 where there is a man who has been stealing from the poor, a man who's been taking advantage of people by stealing through taxes, and then he meets Jesus. And Christ so radically changes his heart, he commits to give half of all he owns to the poor, and then everyone he's stolen from, he pays him back four times over. This wee little man named Zacchaeus is a man who was willing to pay back and prove that he had genuinely met Christ. You see, if you've been walking in that way, if you have stolen from people today, turn from your wicked ways and look unto Christ. Where your wicked ways were placed upon him at the cross, he died in your place and he will receive you. He will forgive you if you turn from sin and trust in him by faith. And then you prove that you genuinely know Christ by no longer stealing. You pay back those whom you have stolen from. You walk in righteousness. You honor the Lord in all of your ways because the righteous will live by faith. Thirdly, we see in the text that judgment is coming for promoting violence. The Babylonians, they loved bloodshed. They would kill anything and anyone who stood in their way. This is a community founded on injustice. It was built upon blood, sweat, and tears of people they enslaved. And yet all of this was in vain. The Lord promised in Jeremiah 51, 58, this is what the Lord of armies says. Babylon's thick walls will be totally demolished. And her high gates set ablaze. The people's will have labored for nothing. The nations will weary themselves only to feed the fire. Indeed, God would bring judgment on this great and mighty nation. And rather than the earth being filled with the glory of Babylon, God promises a future day in which the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. There's coming a day in which worldly Babylon will go away and the glory of God will fill the earth as the water covers the seas. We just sang this song together that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. We see this fast forward all the way up into the book of Revelation where you get to chapter 18 and you see that Babylon has this stranglehold on the earth. I believe that Babylon in the book of Revelation is talking about the worldly system that is in place. In the Old Testament, Babylon is a city, it's a nation. But in the New Testament, Babylon is the worldly system. It's worldliness, it's ungodliness, it's the evil system that runs the world. Well, there's coming a day in which that is over. 
In Revelation 18, that comes to an end. Babylon loses its glory, loses its power, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. When Christ returns, Babylon and all of its glory will be destroyed. Violence and injustice will cease. Satan will be vanquished. King Jesus will rule the earth. Truth and justice will prevail. This is what's coming. This is our future. You can celebrate Jesus. In the new earth, the knowledge of God's glory will infiltrate and saturate every square inch. People will love and rejoice in the king and we will see him and we will be with him forever. We're going to bask in his glory and celebrate who he is and how we look around saying, we don't deserve to be here. And yet Jesus has made us worthy. Jesus has changed our hearts. Jesus has changed everything about us. And so now, man, look what God has done. We're going to celebrate him and bask in his glory. And the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The fourth judgment we see God bringing upon the Babylonians was judgment for partying. God promised coming judgment upon Babylon for how they would use alcohol to take advantage of people sexually. Verse 15, woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. The Babylonians were a nation of predators and they would use alcohol as a means of taking advantage of people. They would fulfill their sexual conquest over the nations. But we see that God will one day shockingly reverse all of this. God is gonna take this drunken nation and expose them in the same way they've exposed others. Babylon is going to receive the punishment they deserve. And if you do not know Jesus, you will receive the punishment that you deserve. And there's no escape. Your sin must be punished. But God has made a way through his son Jesus who was punished for you. That Jesus went to the cross and he died and he took the death that you deserved. And out of love for you, you are so loved by God that Jesus steps in and he takes the punishment that should have fallen upon us. You see, while we were still sinners, God loved us and sent his son for us. Jesus died in our place and he took the death that we deserved. You see, Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's wrath dry so that you don't have to. Jesus took it. He took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it. He doesn't want God's wrath to fall upon you. So he took it at the cross. All of God's wrath was placed upon him. It's the beauty of the gospel is that we look unto Jesus and we see what our sin cost Jesus. It cost him his life. And the cross was ugly and bloody and messy because our sin is ugly and costly and bloody and deadly. And Jesus took it for us. The fifth judgment we see God bringing is judgment for pagan idolatry. These idols that the Babylonians worshipped, these carved idols cannot move, cannot speak, cannot breathe, cannot save. They would have these little figurines that they would put up in their homes and they would bow down and worship it. Christy and I got a front row seat of what this looks like when we were 
over in China picking up our daughter in which we would go to these temples and see people bowing down to these lifeless idols, these statues that some craftsmen had made. And the Lord is offended by idol worship. They, they can't breathe, I can. They can't speak, I can. They can't rule, I can. They can't save, I can. And as idolatry was already filling up the hearts of the nation of Judah, the people were turning away from the Lord and they were worshiping these idols. And God has to judge that. He says, no, what are you doing? You're breaking the second commandments. You're walking away from the one true living God. And as we look down upon them for their idolatry, don't look now, but you and I are tempted in the same way. We may not have these statues that are in our pockets, but we certainly have car keys. We have money that we'll bow down to. We have the perfect body figure that we'll bow down to. We'll have this power and prestige we'll bow down to. We'll have our favorite sports team that we'll bow down to. Anything we give our hearts to other than Christ being in first place, we've just discovered an idol. And so you and I, as followers of Jesus, we live in constant repentance. Yes, you repent when you believe the gospel as a believer whenever you were when that took place. But as a believer, we daily deny ourselves repentance. We're turning away from the desires of our flesh. We're not walking according to the pattern of this world. We're following Christ. He's number one. And now I'm now going after him. And God is going to judge Babylon for their idolatry. And if we do not repent, God will bring judgment upon us. So what do we do? What is our response between these words that we're hearing from God that we don't want to hear, but that we need to hear? Well, here's how God tells us to respond. It's your impact point, and it's verse 20. Be silent before the Lord, for he reigns over the world. Hebrews 9.27 says, man is destined to die once, and after this, the judgment. And there's coming a day in which you and I are going to go one-on-one with God, and we can't hide behind church attendance. We can't hide behind the faith of someone else. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need Jesus on the last day. The question is, do you have him? Do you know him? Have you submitted your life to the Lord? If not, today's a day when you say, Lord, I'm giving you all of my life. Maybe for us as followers of Jesus, in light of who he is, he's the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. Shut your mouth. Be silent. Ecclesiastes says, he is in heaven. We are on earth. Let your words be few as you and I will one day give an account for our lives. The good news of the gospel is that our ultimate judgment was already settled at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And the judgment that we will face as believers is not a judgment against our sin. It's a judgment for how we lived for Christ. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. As you and I are one day closer to that day, let you and I be a people who realize who we are in light of who he is. That we're a 
are people that must be silent before the Lord who is seated on his throne. The one who tells us not what we want to hear, what we need to hear. He is good and he is sovereign and he's proven it through a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb.